One of the things we've been noticing in the news, among other things, is the act of some environmentalists who want to go into museums and throw stuff on paintings and glue themselves to the floor and um, make other statements like that in favor of their view of environmentalism. And we know that there is a debate throughout the United States and throughout the world about how to care for the environment, what it means to care for the environment, how is pollution, um, what, what, what does man have to do with global warming, and uh, how do we control pollution, and what should be regulated, and what should not be regulated. And many of us might find some of the extremes on either side of that argument to be distasteful. But I will tell you this. Those people who are, let's say, rabid about their environmentalism actually have things right. The earth is definitely being destroyed. The earth is definitely being defiled. But it's not the polluting efforts of man in the physical realm. It is the sinful pollution of humankind that is polluting the world and bringing about its demise. And so those who are among us saying, pick the date. Some of the dates have already come. If we don't make these kinds of changes, the whole world will, we, we will lose all of our population by pick the date. That's a true statement, isn't it? The, the world is going to be drastically changed by a certain date. It's just no one knows when it is. And so those who are concerned about the earth being defiled have a biblical standing whether they know the God who created the universe or not. The earth is being defiled, and it's being defiled by sin. Isaiah is about to move us in this next section of Isaiah, and I know some of us are saying, hallelujah, we move to another section of Isaiah. Well, 13 through 23 have been this view of judgment on the nations, so that Judah would understand that they are not to put their trust in any other nation around them because God is sovereign over every one of those nations and he will bring them to, his knee, to their knees in their own time and he will redeem the people he chooses to out of those nations and he will condemn the rest. So Judah, do not trust in any other nation. Trust in your God. Well, in chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27, the camera kind of moves out. And now we see not individual nations, but we see God's actions over the whole world. And in these four chapters, we are going to see juxtapose many ideas, but we're going to see juxtapose the idea of a city and a song. A city, a city of man, which we've already been introduced to in Isaiah, that all of the all of the schemes and desires of evil men against God, the city of man, but also the city of God which we have also seen, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 2, where we see the idealized city and what we're heading toward in the new Jerusalem. Well, in 24 through 27, these ideas are going to be interspersed, and 24 and 25 are going to land heavy on one side, 26 and 7 a little more heavy on the other side, so that we see this universal scope of the sovereignty of God and what God intends to do in light of sin and redemption, in light of of, of judgment and mercy and how he intends to act in those. Then when we move into the next section, 
um, 28 through 35, we are going to see the focus turn back to Jerusalem and to the northern kingdom and their specific situation of not trusting God. 36 and 37, we'll sum all of that up. And 38 and 39, we will um, head back to another king. Remember, we started with Ahaz, a wicked king. We'll close up this first major section of Isaiah with Hezekiah, a, a, a king who does some good as well as comes to his own demise, but he is lifted up in the trust category as being one who does trust God. So that sets the scope of where we're heading. So in chapter 24, we have this idea of God destroying the entire earth. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to engage with this. If you did your green sheets, you've already seen 24, 25, 26, and 27 and how they're similar and where they hang together and where their message is different and the idea of two cities and two songs and two groups of people and how God is working when he, when he rouses himself up to do what he will do. And 24 is about judgment on the entire earth. It's so fitting as we think about Advent in this season. Because when we think about the coming of Christ, we think about his coming, yes, as a baby, but also as a savior. But we're also thinking about his second coming when he comes to, to judge the world, when he comes victorious and the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in. And so we're seeing both of those, the, the looking back to his birth and forward to his second coming. And so when he comes as a baby, 24 is where we will end up. 24 is where we will end up when he comes back again and he comes a second time. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for us at the beginning, but I do want you to stand, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. The first 12 verses. We have a little shift in verse 13, and then we shift again a few verses later. So let's just set the stage here for the beginnings of Yahweh destroying, utterly and awesomely destroying the earth. Isaiah 24.1. Behold... Yahweh will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with, the mast, with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languages, languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled or polluted under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. The grass withers and the flower falls. 
You may be seated. Now in this chapter, we are shown two actions carried out by Yahweh, king of the universe. We could divide this in many different ways, but I want to keep God's actions in the forefront of our mind's eye because this is Yahweh in action. So the first action that we see that he carries out is Yahweh will completely and utterly desolate the earth. Now in this, in, in this point, when we look at this, there have been many commentators who have brought out the chiastic approach to this. Remember, we've looked at this kind of thing before where they form kind of the side of an X um, in Greek, the, the Greek uh, word for X. That, so we see the first point made and the second point made and then maybe a third point made. And then in the fourth, fifth, and sixth point, they line up with the points ahead of them so that it's neatly tied together. Isaiah, God has spoken through Isaiah in this way in these first um, 18 verses, which we didn't get this far, and we didn't get this far on purpose, but these first 18 and 17 and a half verses, we'll see this. And it's not going to show up as clear on the board because we couldn't fit it on one slide, but you will see the way I've numbered them, how they will match the first and the last, the second and the next and the last, and then the third and the fourth line up together. So in this Yahweh completely and utterly desolating the earth, the first thing that we see is the desolation spares no one. The desolation spares no one. Look back at those first three verses again. And we see it very clearly, don't we? Behold, there's our command to look, to watch. Something is about to happen that we need to see. Yahweh will empty the earth. And notice how many different ways this is said. He will empty the earth. He will make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And then you look down in verse 3. It shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. So this is God's intention to do something to the earth that is going to leave it in a completely different state than it was. And look in the middle section there in verse 2. There is not going to be anyone spared. And that's the, that's the intent of all these pairs of, of people. It's to show us that no one escapes this. It doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's the, the people or the priests, the, the slaves or their master, the maids or their mistress, the buyer or the seller, the lender or the borrower, the creditor or the debtor. Everyone will be affected by this because Yahweh is about to act. Now, we're going to fill in the blanks of why he's acting and what more of that acting will look like and, and what happens in the midst of this. But the first thing we want to understand is God intends to act against the earth and all of its inhabitants. Now, we're going to see in chapter 24 all this language. Um, I hope your translation is not one that translates the word for earth as land. It's the same word. And many times in the Old Testament, we're going to see the, the word used to refer to the land in, in the, the covenant nation of Israel. But this should be translated earth. This has the foregoing look to the future when God will come, Christ will return, and the earth, we, we, there are different viewpoints on what will happen. I'm of the strong viewpoint that, that when God takes care of the earth, he's not going to destroy it with fire. He's going to purify it with fire. What he's going to do is he's going to purify it and recreate it. And this is the day that we're looking for. When God, because of the sin of human beings, which we will see, does this. And it's a fearful time. But it's also a time that we will see that God's people can still be joyful in the midst of it. And we'll talk about what that joy looks like. So the first thing we see is the desolation spares no one. The second part of this action of Yahweh completely and utterly desolating the earth, 
the earth and its inhabitants wither under covenant curses due to sin. Here we get the crux of why. Sometimes we don't find out why God is acting. We, we assume it from the text, or we assume it this, from the fact that if God is doing it and promising to do it, then it's good and right. Because if he is telling us he will do something, it is just good and right. Because otherwise it would violate his character. But here we're shown. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. Now all through this, if we were Hebrew scholars and could look at the Hebrew text, we would see all kinds of beautiful writing in here. We would see all kinds of parallelisms and assonance where the, the, uh, the, the vowels in each word kind of sound like each other and, and flow together in a very rhythmic um, manner. This is very beautifully written. And the English translators are trying to capture some of this when they write phrases like, the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth language. Language. Now, there's one of those reminders. Who are the highest people of the earth? They are both the kings, but they are also the lofty. That's been that constant theme in Isaiah, has it not? We've seen the loftiness, the arrogance, the pride of people described in this way so many different times that they are lifted up, they are lofty, they've lifted themselves up, they've exalted themselves. And God is constantly showing us that when we exalt ourselves, we are exalting ourselves where he belongs and he will not take that from anyone because he will not share his glory. So we have all of this mentioned in here. The earth itself mourning and withering, the world languishing, the the highest people of the earth languish. Look at verse 5. The earth lies defiled, or maybe your version says polluted, which is probably more consistent for us in its usage throughout the Old Testament. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. So the humans who inhabit the earth, who are about to be told, we are about to be told are utterly sinful, the earth is struggling under that, and the earth lies defiled. Now, we need to spend a little bit of time, not much here, talking about what this means for the earth to be defiled because it helps us answer some questions, especially questions that are right before us in this section of what everlasting covenant has been broken. That's a difficult question to answer. And if you read 10 commentaries, you'll probably get 12 opinions. It's just the way the nature of the game is, trying to figure out this language that Isaiah has used that has been intensely broad to get apart this main point. And hopefully the main point is already there, even though I'm going to keep hammering it. There will come a day when Yahweh will come to devastate the earth because of the sin of the people who are his enemies. That's the primary point. We don't want to lose sight of that. So when we think about the earth lying defiled or polluted, I want to just draw your attention to three times this is used. Numbers 35, verses 33 and 34 say this. You shall not pollute the land. Now in the context, that's the same word, ha'eretz. It's the same word, land and earth. Context, it should be land, but we're talking about the same thing. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So one way the land is polluted, the earth is defiled, is through the shedding of innocent blood. Listen to Psalm 106, 34 through 39, which gives us this picture even more. 
They did not destroy the peoples as Yahweh commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. Talking about the people of Israel when they took the promised land. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore with their deeds. So another instance of the shedding of innocent blood when people offer up children to their other gods. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then to verse 9. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? So follow the train of thought. He's using the idea of a man divorcing his wife or a wife divorcing her husband, and that that would be a pollution of the land. And we're going to take that, or Jeremiah is, and move it into using that as a picture of idolatry. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Light, lift up your eyes to bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your whoredom. Because she took the whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. So polluting the land in the scriptures is the taking of innocent blood, and it is idolatry. And it's it's mentioned throughout the scriptures. Now, we're going to take those ideas and help us understand what the covenant is, but we're also getting an understanding of the types of sin that are included in the expansive statement that's about to be in front of us. So if you look in verse 5 of chapter 24 of Isaiah, the earth lies defiled... Under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and I think this should probably be translated altered or changed the statutes, not just violated. I don't think we're saying three different, the same thing three different ways. I think we're being told three different ways in, in which the, the, the law has been um, broken by the people of the earth. They transgressed the laws. In other words, they crossed over them as if they didn't exist. They violated or changed or altered the statutes to suit their own needs, and they have broken the everlasting covenant. Now, just think about some of these, the way this is described, that they have transgressed the laws. And think about the world that's before us, where we live in the world today. Would God have enough right to send his son back to do what his son will do at the second coming. Because the laws of God are being transgressed, crossed over as if they don't exist at every turn. At every turn. And even churches are being tempted to do this. But if you move to the second one, that they have altered or changed or violated the statutes, we're also living in a world that that's on full display. That a marriage is not what the Bible says. A marriage is what we say. We have altered. The world around us have altered what a marriage is. The Bible says men and women are created as male and female. But we have altered and changed it to say, well, not really. There could be a whole bunch of different things that that people could be created as. The Bible has set out things that our world is not only transgressing, but is altering. That's the kind of thing that Isaiah is saying brings the final wrath of God upon a nation and upon a world in this setting. And they have broken the everlasting covenant. 
Now, which covenant are we talking about? Move right on to verse 6. There's a first therefore, and that first therefore, because the earth is defiled because of the sin of the people in it, therefore, a curse devours the earth. So we need to think about this idea of the which everlasting covenant is being spoken of and which curse is devouring the earth. And there are some people who would say that this is the covenant with Noah. Because the covenant with Noah, first of all, we have touch points with that passage, with that section of scripture at the beginning of Genesis in our passage, um, where we will see in just a few moments where the windows of heaven are opened. And that's the same language that's used to talk about when the flood starts and the flood stops. And the second part of that same phrase, the foundations of the earth tremble. Those types of phrases and some of the same wording are used when the flood starts and the flood stops. Also, the idea of the shedding of innocent blood being what defiles the earth in many passages of scripture. And we find that right in Genesis 9 with the covenant with Noah, where God talks about that it's not good to shed innocent blood and he will require the blood of the one who sheds it. So there are touch points to that covenant. But the question that I have is how do we violate a covenant that God has said that is a promise from him? And that covenant is God promises that he will not destroy the earth by flood ever again. There's no commands on the people to do or violate anything. So I think what we're talking about here, first of all, we can look at everlasting covenant and find out that several of the covenants are talked about as being everlasting. So we have to make a choice. And I think if we think about creation and we think about what God did in creation and how he created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and they were, to, uh, they were given that creation mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and to rule over it, to be God's vice regent. And then sin entered the world and when sin entered the world, that God cast them out of that garden and now Adam fights with the earth and the earth fights with him. When, when he goes to tend the earth. The earth has been cursed in the midst of the sin of man. And so the curse that comes from that is the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And when Genesis chapter 3 comes, and we find out that when sin entered the world, Paul tells us in Romans that when Adam sinned, who sinned? We all sinned. And so the curse that's brought on is this curse from Adam's sin, and it's over all the world. And this is how it's also tied to the covenant with Noah, because in the covenant with Noah, there's a reiteration of the creation mandate. There's a reiteration of that, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, and to spread the righteousness of God throughout the earth. I want you, if you will, turn to um, the book of Romans. And we'll just go ahead and look at all of this now. Look at the book of Romans. Look in chapter 1. We just visited this chapter in Isaiah not very long ago. But I want us to look at a couple of chapters that reiterate what's going on. Paul uses the same kind of teaching in his book of Romans that Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf in chapter 24. If you look in verse uh, chapter 1, let's just start in 16. We're not going to read all of this. We're going to jump around to several passages. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's a way of saying everyone, 
right? Everyone who believes, Jews, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, that's everyone on the earth. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but God has, because God has shown it to them. For his visible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are with excuse. Without excuse. There is no excuse. Because what God did in creation was enough to show people that there was a creator and they have to, when they, when they disagree with God, when they don't want to see that creator, they suppress the truth and they are guilty. I want you to look now, turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 1 continues all the way with the sin that God gives the world over, all the way to the people who practice such things, and they deserve to die, but they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And then when we look at verse chapter into chapter 2, jump to verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And in these first three chapters of Romans, Paul is going to great extents to make sure that the Jews understand that without Christ they are condemned, and the Gentiles. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he quotes Old Testament scripture, and then verse 19, to prove his point, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. One more spot, chapter 8. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that when 
that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the creation is eagerly, the word has to do with straining their neck out to reach, eagerly awaiting the redemptions of the sons of men. Now the creation that figurative use of the creation, they're not eagerly awaiting their own burning up and destruction. The creation in this figure of this metaphor is waiting for their restoration just like the the resurrected bodies of men and women, just like the saved people will get the redemption in the redemption of the sons of God. So if we're back in chapter 24 of Isaiah, when we, say the, when we see the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its habitants, inhabitants suffer for their guilt. And the second, therefore, in verse 6, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. When Adam sinned, we all sinned, and the curse is upon all the earth, and the earth is being defiled by the sin of humanity. And there will come a time where God will act against that sin, and he will send his son, and when his son comes, there will be the the final redemption of those people who are his, and there will be the destruction of those people who are not his. This is what we're talking about here. And the everlasting covenant that has been violated, the everlasting covenant that has been broken, is the same covenant that Adam broke, where every person is accountable to God for their own sin. And if you're accountable on your own sin, you will be found guilty. You need the blood of another in order to be found not guilty of the sin for the violation, for the breaking of this covenant. Well, the earth and its inhabitants wither under covenant curses due to sin. But the third aspect of this complete and utter destruction, the withering song of the wasted city. Look at verse 7. The wine, well, let me me prepare us for this. And few men are left at the end of verse 6. On one side of us, we hear that, we say, this is going to be devastating. There aren't going to be many people left. But the other side, we're attuned to words like few left, aren't we, in Isaiah. And when we see that, what do we think? The remnant. So for a believer, there's hope even in the few left, which he'll draw our attention to again, beginning in verse 13. But with these... These are going to be the ones who are not left. Look at verse 7. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, the merry-hearted sing. All these triplets and doublets here that are, that are shown us how all of the joy that the people in the earth found outside of obedience to Yahweh will cease. All of this is not presenting a, 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 a sinful lifestyle of revelry. It is presenting to us what joy looks like. Wine is given as a gift from God to make us joyful. Music, song, all of this is given for those people to give glory to God. And they, what they have done is they have given glory to their own idols. And so when, when we have this language of the wine mourning, the vine languishing, the merry-hearted sigh, they're not, they're not happy anymore. They're not laughing. They're not jovial. They're sighing. The mirth of the tambourine, the noise of the jubilant, the, the merry mirth of the lyre have stilled, ceased and stilled. All the music in the world is stopped. No more do they drink wine with singing. 
Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. Now, they could be drinking at this point strong wine, strong drink and wine to relieve their suffering. Uh, there's a verse in, in Proverbs, Proverbs 31.6, that talks about giving wine and strong drink to those who are suffering, to those who are in peril. And this could be what they're doing, and it's not relieving them because the, the destruction around them and to them is so severe. Verse 10, the wasted city here. We, we see the, the city and the song ideas brought together. The wasted city is broken down. The wasted city. Brought back even to the, 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 uh, the idea of the creation at Genesis where the earth was formless and void. The same wording is used there. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. Now we've seen the house already in Isaiah used as a description of how bad God's judgment will be and we will see it several more times in Isaiah. These are common terms and common language that we have encountered already. There's an outcry from the streets because of the lack of wine. So now they start to complain. The joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. This is what we're talking about here. There is no reason to have joy because their joy was in earthly stuff and things. And when God took it away, they got angry. And now they can have no joy. Their wine brings them no joy. There is no music to dance to. There's, the instruments are silenced. This is that picture again that we have seen in Isaiah that reminds us that we don't find our joy and sustenance in the things of the world. And we don't even find them in the gifts of God. We find them in the giver of the gifts as we celebrate with his gifts. We're constantly needing to ask ourselves, if God took that thing away from us, would we still be faithful? Would we still be joyful? Would we still have our identity? Would we still find our sustenance in Christ himself if God decided to take that away from us? The picture of the world who has the withering song, God takes it away in his judgment and they've lost all joy because there's nothing left for them because they have spit in the face of the God who gave them those gifts. Desolation, again, we sum it up with these devastating words. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. The place that you're supposed to enter safely where the wisdom sits at the gates, they lay in ruins because the enemy has taken it over. That's the imagery that is used. So we have the earth and its inhabitants wither under the covenant curses due to sin, and we have the withering song of the wasted city, but now we kind of shift gears here and we have the joyful song of the redeemed remnant. And this is where we start the backward movement of our chiastic outline where we've come in now C1 and C2. They're, they're the opposites, but they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about the song of a specific group of people, the song of the city of man versus the song of the city of God. We've just seen the song of the inhabitants of the city of man when God acts against them. Now in verse 13 we begin to see the joyful song of the redeemed remnant. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is due, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of Yahweh, they shout for from the west, therefore in the east give glory to Yahweh, in the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. 
Now, we've seen this imagery before that we find in verse 13. We've seen it in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6 already, where the the olive tree, when it's the time for the harvest, they shake the olive tree and all the ripe olives fall. But up at the very top or at the very ends, there's some that don't fall. Those are left there. There's only a few. Or the gleanings of the field, whether it's a, a, a vineyard or a wheat field, a grain field of some sort, the gleanings that are left for the poor people to come and take, the, the ones that are not quite ripe yet but will be later. There's a few of those. So what we have described in verse 13 and following is the few men and women and children who were left. This is that picture of the remnant again. And just like those those agricultural images are brought to us. There's a few that are left on the tree. There are a few, but they're throughout the world. Did you see it? To the east, to the west, to the coastlands, throughout the entire earth, the ends of the earth. God will have people from all tribes, tongues, nations, and people groups, and he will have them all. And when this day happens and Christ returns, there will be the redeemed, the remnant, singing songs to the righteous one. And that's the picture that's given here. This this will be developed much more in the next three chapters. But here we just have it as this hint, this hint of hope. But it does cause us to wonder, how are we supposed to respond when we see God acting in judgment? How how are we supposed to, are we just supposed to party? Are, Are we just supposed to have songs and parties and not care about what God is doing in the world? Now, we have, we have two different ways to look at this, don't we? Because we are travelers on the earth until God takes us to the new heavens and the earth. But then we will be in the new heaven and new earth with Christ. And so here we have a role, and Isaiah demonstrates that role, doesn't he? The prophet wastes away over the sin of the world. The earth earlier in four to six the earth and its inhabitants are withering under the covenant curses and now the prophet wastes away because of that sin look at the second half of verse 16 but i say notice i i i isaiah is speaking here i say i waste away i waste away woe is me now when you see isaiah say woe is me where does your mind go immediately Chapter 6, right? His calling, when, when his sin was revealed to him, he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. This is the kind of lamenting that Isaiah is doing now. But there is no repentance, so there is no seraph bringing the stone to cleanse. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. This is another way the Hebrew just states the same, uses the same word over and over in different forms to show us that the people who are in sin and not repenting, they're betraying, they're traitors, they're marked out by this character, and he mourns over them. Verse 17, terror and the pit and the snare. Pahad, pahat, pa, that's what's in the Hebrew. All of these different times where the Hebrew sings with these words that, the, that are brought to us. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. So Isaiah is saying, you can try to escape, but you'll be going from the frying pan into the fire. That's how we might say it today. Because you cannot escape the righteous judgment of Yahweh. 
it is impossible to do. And Isaiah mourns over this. He's undone over this. So there is a place for the singing and the joyful in the new heavens and new earth. And that's what we will do. But in this world, we're lamenting over the unrepentant world. And this is what God says in passages like Isaiah 18.23, where he says, or Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that, that he should turn from his way and live? And just another few verses later, he says, Any man, I don't want any man to perish. And yet we know that men perish because God is righteous, just, and merciful and loving. Repentance is the key. And so just as Isaiah mourns over the sin, he sees the picture of the party and the celebration and the joy, but when he's watching the world be punished because they refuse to repent and turn to Yahweh, he's brought undone. And that is our role. There will, become a, there will come a time of rejoicing. I, I tell people all the time, it will be in heaven when you can rejoice that your loved ones are not there. Not here. Here, we know that God has revealed himself as a long-suffering God, and he is long-suffering and withholding his judgment so that we might what? Repent. That's what's brought to us. He is merciful and long-suffering so that we might repent. We could have read that verse right in Romans chapter 2 when we were just there. So this is what God is wanting to do. We are mourning over people who are rebelling against God. We pray for them. We witness to them. We call them back. That's why the language of snatching people from the fire is used in the New Testament. For when we see people who are committed to us and part and parcel with us, who've made a covenant commitment with us, go out and embrace sin, we go after them. We snatch them away from the fire. We do what Jesus would have done for the one sheep. And if they walk off the edge, that is up to God. But we are brokenhearted of that. And when we get to heaven, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we will find out that everything that God did is righteous and just, and we will be able to sing in the city of God. We will be able to sing with joy because we will have no mourning. So we won't mourn the people who are not there. We won't even be celebrating the people who are there. We'll be celebrating the Lamb who provided our salvation, and will be singing songs to him forever and ever. Amen. Well, beginning in the middle of verse 18, we see the desolation spares nothing. We started out in verse 1 through 3, the desolation spares no one. Now we see in 16b through 18b that the desolation wastes away, or the, I'm sorry, 18, the middle of 18 to verse 20, that the desolation spares nothing. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. When we read that, we're thinking about the judgment of the flood. So our mind is still in the mind of what judgment is coming. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and it will not rise again. So again, restating, not only the people will be overcome by God, but the earth will be overcome by God. And when we see passages like 2 Peter and Jude talking about this day and the fire that comes uh, that God will use to destroy the earth, that's a purification of the earth. 
It's a purification and a preparation for the new heavens and the new earth in which Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God will dwell with Christ and with God forever. Well, Yahweh will completely and utterly desolate the earth, but Yahweh will also reign. He reigns as a righteous and powerful judge and as a glorious, unparalleled king. Look at verse 21. On that day, the day of this awesome judgment, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. Now, that's a merism. That's a way of, of using the ends to talk about all of them. And so we're talking about the, the heavenly beings. Think of the prince of the power of Persia that we saw in Daniel. That it was the, the archangel was coming to Daniel to an, deliver the answer to his prayer, and he's held up by the spiritual battle that's going on. Think of Ephesians 6, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with the principalities and powers. That we Think of the, the sons of God that have been placed over the, in the spiritual realm certain countries, and some are fallen and lead them into sinfulness. This is all going to happen. This is all scriptural language and all of that. Those, the spiritual beings and the humans on the earth, God will leave nothing untouched. Verse 22, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison and after many days they will be punished. Now, this is the language of Revelation picked up. Revelation picks up this language to show us. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 20. I'm not going to get into all the debates about this. If you want to know about the thousand years and all that, go find the sermon on this. I don't, I don't have time for this this morning. So, but, but we are going to talk about the pit and the final judgment. The same thing that's talked about here. Look at verse 7 of chapter 20 of Revelation. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. For battle, Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from, from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of, the fi lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Earlier in chapter 20, we are told that Satan is bound up in the pit for that thousand years. 
So thrown into the pit, the dead, the dead who are outside of Christ are, are given up by Hades and the sea and this picture, and they've been held there until the judgment day when they will then be thrown into the lake of fire. Keep your finger in Revelation because we're going to come back there in just a minute, but look back again at Isaiah 24. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. Then they will be shut up in prison, and after many days... Revelation would say a thousand years, or from the time they die until the Lord returns, they will be punished. So we definitely have in mind here the end of the earth. We have in mind the second coming of Christ and the picture of the song of the city and the city and the reason they're being judged, and yet there are a few. There is a remnant. There is a remnant. Now, how is there a remnant? In what way is there a remnant? Does God just arbitrarily just say, well, you'll be part of the few and you'll be part of the many? You're the one who will walk on the narrow path and you're the one who will walk on the wide. You'll go through the narrow gate and you'll go through the wide gate. What does he mean by that? Turn back to Revelation chapter 20. And as you're turning there, listen as I read the 23rd verse of Isaiah 24. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So after that, then the moon and the sun will be confounded and ashamed. Now, this this could be a reference to Um, the idols of all the nations and how they worship the sun and the moon and stars instead of Yahweh. And when when Yahweh reveals himself, then the, the sun and the moon and the stars take their proper place. Or it could just be the fact that we as humans can look to space and be and be overwhelmed with the marvel of God's creation. And if we look at it without God, then we're seeing it. And it 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 is completely put out of our gaze compared to what God would be. So when a lost person looks out and marvels at space and doesn't see God, when God shows up, he will be greater than what they see in space. When we as saved people look out into space and we see the sun and the moon and all the stars and the galaxies, we are brought to our knees at a sovereign God who created them all. And when he shows up, he will exceed them all in his glory. And we will worship with him. Look at Revelation chapter 20, 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now look over, if you will, at verse 22 of the same chapter. 21-22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Then no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see the imagery that is in the new heavens and new earth and why the sun and the moon are eclipsed? The glory of God is so much greater. And there will not even be need for that. There's no night. Why have a moon? The sun, we won't need that because the glory of God will light our days. And we will worship him face to face at that time. How is the remnant provided? It's provided because God sends his Messiah. He sends his son to come to the earth as a babe, what we're going in to celebrate in this season, to live a perfect life and die and be raised again and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And all who place their faith and trust in him receive his benefits. All who place their faith and trust in him and repent of their sin, remember that is what's lacking in chapter 24, is it not? They've transgressed the law, they've altered the law, they've broken the everlasting covenant, but they have not repented. According to the scriptures, when Adam sinned, all men sinned. And the only way that we are not responsible for our own sin is to have Christ stand in our stead. Because his death was our death. He took the wrath of God instead of us so that we are in relationship with him. And this is our end. Revelation 21 and 22. That's where we are headed. Repentance is what was missing in 24. It's what brings you and I into the blessings is repentance from our sin and trust in Christ who provided all of that work. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is why it's given to us, especially in this time where we're thinking about his coming. We're thinking about not only his first coming that we celebrate at Christmas, but his second coming when God decides to send him again and all of this takes place. This is the meal that we share together to remember everything that's been done for us so that as we walk on the face of this earth, which is such a short time, isn't it? It's such a short time. The older I get, the shorter that time becomes. It is such a short time. Heaven is forever. The new heavens and new earth and perfect worship without sin and dying and crying and tears, all of that, that's forever. And so in this life, we have been given this supper to remember what Christ has done. So that we know we're remembering what he did finally and fully on the cross. We're remembering all the benefits that come to us. We're looking with fond and great and glorious hope for the day that he returns. So that we know that he will stand in our stead on the day of judgment. And we will worship him forever. So we feed upon these truths. We're not just taking a, um, a cup and a piece of bread and memorializing his death. We are 
eating these and in the midst of it, we are remembering and feeding upon the work of Christ. So that when we go out from this place, we're reminded again and again that Christ died and that we will live forever because he lives forever. That our resurrection is sure because his resurrection is sure. So this morning, if you are visiting with us, you are welcome to partake with us of the Lord's Supper. We just, this is for believers. This is for those, it's not, you notice I didn't say it's for the perfect ones. It's for the people who are putting their faith and trust in Christ every single day. And 